The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Before we begin our study this evening, let's uh, make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Uh, give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, nine if necessary. And then we'll start our study. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we can come together to study your word, to be strengthened and refreshed by the uh, truth of your word, Father, as we dig into your word, into the uh, meat of your word that provides the nutrition that we need for our spiritual lives, that we may grow. We pray that we might be able to understand these things, and that God the Holy Spirit would make clear to us the principles that we need to apply in our lives, and that above all, we might have the humility and the teachability to allow the Holy Spirit to uh, challenge us and convict us of the truth of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. I want you to go back to verse 12. Now, we've been skirting around the basic message and application of this section from verse 10 down through verse 14 for the last two months. I started this... Ten weeks ago, this is uh, Lesson 56, and I started this in Lesson 45, so this is about 11 weeks of this. And we spent a lot of time dealing with what I would call applicational issues in relationship to discernment, which is a major part of this particular passage. We got started because we were looking at the things, the mechanics of becoming dull believers, those who are lazy, those who... Uh, regress in their spiritual life back in, in our study of verses 10 and 11. But I only did a peripheral look at 12 through 14, but it's important to understand what's going on in 12 through 14 in order to understand what happens in chapter 6, 1 through 8. And chapter 6, 1 through 8, specifically verses 4 through 8, some of the most controversial Verses in the Bible, difficult to understand, related to eternal security. And some people think that these verses refer to believers who lose their salvation, which isn't true. But uh, we have to look at this because it's foundational. The warning is serious, and that's the core of the warning of this particular uh, exhortation section that begins in 5.11 and extends through 6.20. The warning section is specifically in verses 4 through 8 of chapter uh, chapter 6. So what we do in the last three verses of chapter 5 sets up our understanding of these difficult passages in chapter 6. So we'll look at verse 12. For though, or we could translate this for even, it's a concessive clause, even by this time you, he's addressing his his listeners, his audience, these, remember they're Jews, probably priests, who had a had trusted Christ as the Messiah, had grown to a certain level of maturity, and then they'd come under pressure, adversity, persecution, hostility, opposition, and they began to doubt uh, their faith, they begin to regress spiritually so that now they're characterized as being dull, lazy, and he uses even more uh, condemning language in these verses. He says, by this time, you ought to be teachers. Now, when he uses this word uh, teachers, he's not talking about a spiritual gift. He's just talking about the fact that any believer at a certain point ought to be teachers. 
Let me get through the whole verse, and then we'll go back and deal with the details. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. We start off with this verb, you ought to be teachers. Now, this is a powerful concept in the Christian life. You ought to. As a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is an expectation that something ought to be present in your life. It's not just a matter of I'm saved and now I can live however I want to, and if I sin and I'm out of fellowship, I'll just confess my sin. But there's an obligation that is placed upon each one of us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ because of what Christ did for us and because we are now members of the royal family of God. God has provided all of this for us, and inherent with the grace gift of salvation is responsibility. The verb here is the Greek verb othello, which means obligation to perform a duty. It's not legalism. We're not obligated in the sense that uh, we're trying to gain the approval of God. We're not obligated in the sense that we're trying to merit salvation. It's not a works type of system. It's just the inherent responsibility or obligation of having something, of ownership of a of this new Christian life. If you have a house whether you bought it or whether you were given it or whether you're renting it for somebody, there is an inherent obligation or responsibility to take care of the property. To take, If you own a car, you have an obligation to take care of it. If you don't, it's just going to fall apart and won't be of any value for you. And that's what's true about the Christian life. If you don't live up to the obligations or inherent responsibilities, in the Christian life, to utilize the assets that God's given us, then, well, we just become sort of a rusty old hulk, and it doesn't do us any good. By this time, we ought to be teachers, and the idea here is anyone who can instruct someone else regarding the Word of God, and anybody ought to be able to do that at a certain level of maturity, sitting around the kitchen table, uh, talking to uh, a co-worker at lunch, uh, discussing it with your children. It, it, by, at a certain level of maturity, you ought to be able to teach other people what you have learned in the, in the Christian life. I have a lady in my class this semester at the college, and she said every day after she leaves uh, the class, she goes and has lunch with a friend of hers and tells her everything she learned in class that day. <laughs> so anybody ought to be able to grow to a certain level and be able to com- communicate what they're learning to other people. But if you're still a spiritual infant, you can't do that because you don't know enough to to really say anything. And that's the problem is they have regressed from the high watermark of their spiritual growth to a point where they're, even though chronologically they're uh, maybe 10 or 12 or 15 years old in their spiritual life, in terms of the way they act, they're acting like a baby. And we'll see that concept brought out in a minute. They need someone to teach them again the first principles of the oracles of God. The first principles of the oracles of God. And this is the Greek verb, or the Greek noun, stoikeion. Stoikeion. This was an important word in Greek vocabulary. It had a rich heritage in philosophy, but it's used in a more general sense, not in a technical philosophical sense. In the New Testament, it has to do with the basic parts of something, the rudiments, the uh, elements, or the basic components of something. We might say that it just refers to the ABCs of the oracles of God, the uh, basic doctrines of Scripture, as it were. And so he is uh, reprimanding them and says, by now you ought to be teachers, but instead we have to go back and go over basic doctrine all over again because you've obviously forgotten what those basics are and their implications for your spiritual life. This word storkeion is used in a couple of other interesting passages in the New Testament. For example, in Second Peter 3, Verse 10, we're told that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements, that is the stoicheion, the core basic elements, the basic chemical structure of the present universe will melt away with a great noise and, melt, and the elements will melt with fervent, uh, the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. 
looking for and hastening the coming day of God, in verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming day of God because of the, which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. So this is an example of how Stoichaean refers to the basic chemical elements that make up the universe, that table of elements that you were supposed to memorize when you took chemistry in high school. Galatians 4.3 uses it in a different sense. It's, uh, there Paul says, even so, when we were children, we were in bondage uh, under the elements of the world. This is the basic thinking in the world system, whatever that pagan system was the, of the culture out of which we come. Paul is saying that that put us in bondage. In this situation, he's talking about as Jews, they were in bondage under the law. The law just communicated basic elements. Colossians 2.8, he deals with the basic principles of the uh, Greek cosmic system. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of of the world, and that would refer to the basic, whatever the basic norms and standards are of cosmic thinking, the basic metaphysical approach, their basic uh, ethical or epistemology of the world, which would be rationalism or empiricism or mysticism, that don't be taken captive through those basic principles which are in opposition to Christ. That's the structure there, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. So we see that there is a 180-degree opposition between the basic principles of how the culture, based on human viewpoint, wants us to think, to live, to make decisions and value judgments, and that related to Christ. But in Christianity, there's also basics, and that's the problem with, uh, with these Jewish believers is they have to go back and relearn the basic doctrines of Christianity. Understanding that term will help us understand a few other things that come along as we go through uh, this passage. Now, in Hebrews 5.12, it says, For by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic doctrines of the oracles of God. And in fact, you have come to need milk and not solid food. So, this idea of coming to need uh, milk instead of solid food is a perfect uh, active indicative of the verb genomai, which means to become something that you were not before. It uh, indicates that they had grown to a state where they didn't need milk. They were um, pushing into the deep things of God in the Scripture. They were understanding the more advanced doctrines in the Scripture. But as a result of carnality in their life, and because they were, they began to question and reject the teaching of grace in the New Testament, they began to reverse course in their spiritual life. And so they became something that they weren't. They had, uh, first of all, they started as new believers, and they became something that they weren't then. They were worldly. They were carnal. They were uh, just barely saved, and they become, became something that they weren't, and that was advanced, mature believers. And then when they became advanced, mature believers, understanding doctrine, living on divine viewpoint, then they went uh, negative to doctrine, and then again they became something that they weren't at that point, which is uh, carnal uh, believers operating on human viewpoint instead of divine viewpoint. So they became uh, something that they were not, and they began to need milk instead of solid food. Now, this concept of milk is one that we find in a number of important passages in Scripture. It's an analogy that's where the Scripture, the Word of God, is used... Uh, or as compared to food, because the Word of God is what nourishes and strengthens our soul, just as physical food and drink provides the nutrients we need to keep body, our bodies healthy and strong, producing growth. And so the analogy is developed in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, that just as, a new, just as newborn babes, we are, and that word desire is a command. In English, it doesn't come across as an imperative, but in the Greek, it is an imperative. It's a command. 
I think if I were to translate this, I would tr- switch the or- word order here and say, "Desire the pure milk of the world, like or desire the pure milk of the word, like a newborn baby." And if you've ever heard a newborn baby scream for milk, then you have some idea of what that's saying. It's saying that you, as a newborn believer, should be demanding to be fed. You should be throwing a a little temper tantrum as a new baby demanding that somebody feed you. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever had the opportunity to go on a real fast for any length of time. And I don't mean some of these silly fasts you have today where they're going to go on a vegetable fast or they're going to go on a cookie fast or they're going to something like where they just take one thing and they're not going to do that for two or three days. But a real fast where all you have is water for several days. And when I was young, I was about 27 years old, I had one course left to take at Dallas Seminary, and it was one I had dreaded taking. We were required to take a Christian ed elective, Christian education. And those of us who are more doctrinally oriented and theologically astute, more oriented to the languages, just despise the Christian education department. These were the guys that walked around with a pocket full of colored pencils, and they were doing all this color coding in their Bibles and everything, but they couldn't think their way out of a wet theological bag if they had to. But, But they learned all these gimmicks for teaching and everything. So I found out that uh, I could take the course somewhere else and have it transferred in. And Wheaton College, which is uh, up in uh, Chicago, has a huge camping program that they run up in uh, the upper part of Wisconsin and into the uh, upper peninsula, the UP they call it, uh, of, of Michigan. And so they ran a program for about two or three weeks that was like an outward bound program where you went out and you backpacked and you canoed and it was a wilderness leadership training course and I found out I could take that and transfer that back as a credit for my CE class and I thought this is great I get to get a two hour credit for, for doing what I love to do just back camping and backpacking and, and uh, canoeing white water so we did that well what I didn't know was the last three days of this this trip, they put everybody out on the shore of Lake Superior in a solo. And you were isolated about 200 yards from the nearest person, and you had your shelter half, and you could drink all the water you wanted right out of Lake Superior. The mean temperature is 32 or 32 and a half to 33 degrees, so it, 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 uh, it's very cold. Nothing bad can live there, so you just have all the water you want. But they warned us that don't try to sneak food. Now, at 27, and I've been backpacking for three days, I could eat horses, hooves, tail, everything, raw. It, it wouldn't matter. And uh, But we were told not to take any food. I kept saying, well, you know, maybe I'll sneak something. They said, because the problem is the bears can smell it a half a mile away, and if you even have anything in your pack, that smells like food, that's touched food, then the bears will come in and tear up your pack. And they've had it happen. And even that week when we put all of our, uh, the, when the leaders, the leadership team had put all their packs together where the food was, three or four bears got in just tore the heck out of those packs um, during that three-day solo that we had. So that was my one and only experience of really fasting and trying to go uh, two or three days without food. And I had read this before, but it was purely academic knowledge, and now it became epinosis knowledge, that after about 36 hours, your appetite truly does go away. At first, you're very hungry. I mean, that first day, I thought I was going to eat the bark off the trees. But by the afternoon of the second day, the appetite diminished. And I've been told that as you go through a true fast for 30 or 40 days, this is why the Lord could truly go. Wasn't He wasn't using his omnipotence to be able to go without food for 40 days and 40 nights. Any human being can do that. But at the end of about 40 days, your appetite starts coming back with a vengeance because if you go much longer, you will create serious uh, health problems for yourself, if not die. So uh, I've been told that after that you can go all that length of time and you don't 
have an appetite. And all I can attest to from my own experience is that from about the, the middle of the second afternoon on through to the morning of the fourth day when we got to see real food again, that I didn't have an appetite. It just went away. And I've often thought when I teach on this passage that that what happens when baby believers don't demand to be fed is they don't get fed. And what happens when you don't get fed is that your appetite goes away. And so you don't have an appetite for doctrine anymore, and you're just real happy with praise and worship music. And you feel real good about feel-good sermons, and you feel real good about motivational church. And and it's been so long since you've had any real biblical food that that you're you're living on nothing, and your appetite's gone away. And that happens. But uh, afterward, when you start eating again, that appetite comes back with a vengeance. And I think uh, the day after I got off of that, that fast, and incidentally the fast ended with a 12-mile run. That was a lot of fun. Um, on, on no fuel. I think I had six meals in the next eight hours. Got up the next morning, 5 o'clock, with a friend of mine, and we drove into town, and we ate breakfast. And then we got to the airport, and we ate breakfast again. And then there was an airplane problem, and so I got bumped to first class coming out of O'Hare. And they gave me a first-class full breakfast again. So within three hours, I had three full breakfasts, and I was still hungry. So your appetite comes back with a vengeance, and I think that that what happens is young believers, new believers who never get fed, never really they just lose their appetite for the word. But if they're taught the word, somebody comes along and really teaches them the word, then that appetite will come back, and they'll get hungry again if there ever was a real interest in the word. Well, First Peter two two is a command that newborn babies should desire the pure milk of the Word so that they can grow. It is the milk of the Word that provides the nourishment to grow. It's not the singing. It's not prayer. It's not fellowship. It is learning the Word of God that provides the, the mechanics, the tools, the content that the Holy Spirit uses to produce growth. Now, another thing I want you to note here is that This is addressed to babes. Babes need milk. And the word here for a babe is brephos. There are several words we're going to look at in a minute that the Greek uses to describe different stages of growth in the Christian life. But a brephos refers to a newborn child or a slightly older infant. It describes a chronologically new believer. And so this word, it's talking about somebody who just gets saved, just regenerate, their brand new baby, and what they need to grow is milk of the word. But if you grow on milk, what do you need? Eventually, you need to have that transferred to more solid food. You need to get off of the milk, and you need to get onto uh, eating a good uh, a good steak or a good prime rib, and you need to have all your vegetables and everything else. And that's what happens when you come to Bible class here is you get a little bit of everything, and sometimes you get a tough steak, and you just have to learn to set that aside because you're not ready to go through that doctrine or really understand what's being taught. So the more you hear it, the more it will make sense. That's just the growth process. But this word brephos here is the, is the positive word that is used in the Word of God to describe a chronologically new believer. But there are other words that are used as well. So here I have a little chart on the growth nouns in the New Testament. The first is a brephos, which we just looked at, a chronologically new believer. Second word that's used is the word technion. Older child is technion, but technion is a word that's used for a little child. It's used in the New Testament. It's used positively and affectionately for young believers. Brephos looks at them in terms of their chronology, so does technion. It's a very positive term. The third word that's used is paideon. This refers to a slightly older child coming out of infancy, can refer to a baby or an infant. It's the diminutive form of the noun pais. And again, it can refer, like brephos, to a recently born child, a baby, or an infant. Pideon is also a positively used word referring to this chronologically new infant. But then we have the word that we'll run into in Hebrews. 
And this is the noun napios. Now, napios can, in some contexts, refer to a chronologically new believer, but that's rare in the, in the New Testament. Usually in the New Testament, it's used in, in a negative way, in a pejorative way, to describe believers who have regressed in their spiritual life and act like spiritual babies. They should be spiritual adolescents. They should be spiritual adults. But they're acting like whiny babies all, of, all again because they've gotten off the Word of God and they've regressed uh, spiritually. Or it's used to refer to believers who are no longer recent believers chronologically. They're no longer newborns, but because they have refused to grow, they should be mature, but they're still acting like whiny babies. So it's a term that is used in several key passages to describe regressive carnal believers. They should be mature, but they're not. And in some cases, they were mature already. It's used this way in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3. There's a big debate whether you know it or not, whether or not there really is a carnal believer. See, lordship salvation and certain forms of uh, Calvinism insist that there's no such thing as a carnal believer. If you're truly saved, you will persevere. That's, that's that fifth point in the acronym TULIP for Calvinism the P for perseverance of the saints. But when we look at 1 Corinthians 3.1, it's in contrast that's presented here between those who are living according to the flesh, sarks, and those who are spiritual. So let's just briefly uh, examine it. Paul says, And I, brethren, that is, he addresses the Corinthian believers as brethren. They are believers. Later on in the same chapter, he's going to say, You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. They are believers. There's no question about it. Are they acting like it? Not at all. Remember, they're, they're full of arrogance. They're uh, dividing themselves into factions. One person says, you know, I was saved and taught by Apollos. Another one says, I was saved and taught by Peter. And then the holiness crowd says, well, I'm better than you all. I was saved by Jesus. So you, you, it's, it's got all this division going on, and everybody's uh, aligning themselves with, with different groups. They're emphasizing uh, special knowledge about spiritual things coming out of a, a, some of the Gnostic type of teaching that was uh, already present in Greek culture at that time. They were, uh, later on we find out in the church a few chapters later that they're putting up with a, a man in the church that's committed a moral sin and merit. It's not such a, such a cultural, uh, problem for us, but this guy had married his stepmother. And that's not as culturally offensive to us, but it was so culturally offensive even to the unbelievers in Corinth that they could not understand how this Christian church could let this guy be a part of their, uh, a part of their assembly. So they're countenancing uh, all manner of, uh, unbel- of, um, of immorality. Plus, when they get mad at each other, they're dragging each other into, law- into courts and and suing one another. They, they just had, they were a lovely bunch of people. And they had all kinds of problems. And they weren't acting anything like a believer should act, but they were genuine believers. And so Paul says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual, that is, those who were in right relationship to the Holy Spirit but as to carnal, that is, those who are operating according to the sin nature, the flesh, sarks. The carnal here is the sarkinos. He says, and then he qualifies that, and he says, as to babes in Christ. Now, he doesn't use brephos. He doesn't use technion. These would be positive terms of, of a newborn believer. They're not newborn. They've been saved for at least three years. And he says, but I have to address you as napios. This is an insult. He's saying, I have to address you as a whiny baby who knows better, who's been taught better, who should be acting as if they're much older, but you're, you're acting uh, like a whiny baby. You have regressed in your spiritual life. He goes on to say in verse 2, I fed you with milk. And not with solid food, for until now you're not able to receive it. This is a classification of those who should have grown, 
They had the chronological time to grow, but they hadn't because they were still operating on the flesh. For until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able to. Why? Because they're walking according to the flesh, which is what we studied uh, the last two or three weeks here in Romans 8 and in First Corinthians, I mean in Galatians 5. Romans 8 and Galatians 5. And then in verse 3 he says, For you are still fleshly. You're still walking according to the flesh. Galatians 5, uh, 17 to 19. For where there's envy, strife, and divisions among you, and those same words are used to describe the works of the flesh in Galatians 5, uh, 19 and following. For where there's envy, strife, and divisions among you, you are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? That's That's where you get your hermeneutical key here. They're acting like... Mere men, without the aid of the Holy Spirit, they're still living on the basis of their sin nature and trying to live the Christian life apart from being in right relationship to God the Holy Spirit. So 1 Corinthians 3 sets up the same vocabulary that we're going to run into in our passage in Hebrews chapter 5. The same vocabulary dealing with milk and dealing with the uh, the napios baby. Hebrews 5.13, he says, For everyone who partakes only of milk, that was the case with the Corinthian believers. They were only partaking of milk. They weren't getting beyond the basics. Only, only of milk. See, if you look at this passage... The problem that they have here is that they have to be taught again the stoicheia, the first principles. Uh, they've come to need milk, so stoicheia is related to milk. Verse 14, he, the writer says, solid food belongs to those who are full age, so there's a contrast there. And then in verse 1 says, of chapter 6, he says, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary, that's the stoicheia again, the elementary principles of Christ, let us press on to maturity. So the, the issue here is that they're still acting like babies, and they just want to hear basic doctrine, if that. They want to have their uh, ears tickled, Paul would say. They just want to be entertained. So he says, everyone who partakes only of milk, and it's stated here as a universal principle, everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a napios. He's just a, uh, he's old enough chronologically to have matured, but he hasn't grown, so he is uh, out of line. This napios is a carnal believer who hasn't grown. Now let's look at a couple of key words in 5.13. For everyone who partakes of milk is unskilled. What's that word? Unskilled is the Greek word aperos, meaning inexperienced. He doesn't understand the skills that you have to have to grow as a believer. We've talked about these many times, the spiritual skills. We have to understand confession of sin. Whenever we sin, we confess our sin. And as soon as you confess your sin, the flip side is that you're filled with the Spirit. You're in right relationship with the Spirit. You're back in fellowship. You don't do anything else to be in fellowship. You just confess your sin and you're back in fellowship. But that's not enough. That just restores you to a place where growth can take place. Then the second skill is walking by the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5.16. That's an imperative that is addressed to our volition. We have to walk by the Holy Spirit. We have to develop that skill, learn what it means to walk by the Holy Spirit, to study the Word and apply it, be in in moment-by-moment dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Then we have the faith rest drill where we learn to trust the promises, the principles, and the provision of God in the Scripture. We have to learn what they are. We have to memorize different promises and understand the difference between promises related to Israel, promises related to Abraham, promises related to David, and promises related to church-age believers. So we learn to to claim promises. In that process, we're also orienting our thinking to the Word of God, beginning to realize that that our, that we're not oriented 
uh, to the Word at all. So we have to become doctrinally oriented. At the same time, we have to be grace-oriented, realizing that it's not based on who we are, but who God is and His provision for us. And those are the basic skills. Now, very few people ever learn about that. They learn about it in a general sense, but it's never really systematized, categorized, and provided for most folks. And they just think that all you need to do to grow as a Christian is to go to church and be moral. But that's not good enough. Because Paul, as we saw last time, Paul in Romans chapter 7 was being moral. He was following the Mosaic law. He was being as moral as he could. He said every time it ended up, I would discover that I was lusting, that I was committing sin. I ended up doing what I didn't want to do, and I didn't do what I wanted to do, and I was just a mess because he didn't understand the relationship of God the Holy Spirit as the key dynamic power base for the spiritual life in the church age. So we have to learn those skills, and as these regressive believers who had become dull of hearing, lazy, they, were, they had lost the skill in the Christian life. And so uh, the writer of Hebrews makes this universal statement, everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled. They've lost the skills, and it's related specifically to something. The next phrase says, to the word of righteousness. Well, what exactly is this? Word of righteousness. It's a uh, interesting phrase in the in the Greek. It's a just a basic genitive phrase. Word and it's probably and it should be taken as a uh, as a, um, a genitive of content. A word or message. Logos. Logos is a word that you that's translated word here has a wide range of meaning. It can mean word, it can mean message, it can mean thought, it uh, can mean reason. It, it, if you look it up in the uh, lexicon, it has about a column or two of different meanings and nuances to it. It's where we get our word logic. It's where we get our root for study, like biology, which is the study of life or living things. Uh, we talk about zoology, which is a study of uh, of animals, so psychology, the study of the soul, that L-O-G-Y ending comes from this Greek word uh, logos. So here it should be translated the message of, or the message related to or consisting of, it's a genitive of, uh, here of content, message related to righteousness. So he, the person who... Uh, only partakes of milk is unskilled in the message related to righteousness. This is a foundational doctrine. And that foundational doctrine relates to understanding how we have righteousness and the significance of that. If you don't understand the imputation of righteousness and its implication for your Christian life, then you're constantly going to be uh, dealing with problems of guilt. You're never going to fully understand grace. You're constantly going to be trying to uh, gain God's approval. You're constantly be going to be slipping into legalistic activities because you just don't understand the source of righteousness. So we have to go back to this basic doctrine related to imputation and righteousness. So we'll go back to some key passages in Corinthians in order to understand this. Remember, what's happening with the Hebrews is that they have to rediscover in terms of their spiritual life the significance and the impact of imputation of righteousness, not just for salvation, but what that means for their ongoing spiritual life. And we find our first reference to this in 1 Corinthians 1.30. But of him you are in Christ Jesus. The him, of course, refers to God the Father, who is the ultimate source of all things, including our salvation. But of him you are in Christ Jesus. You, as an individual believer, are in Christ. That is your position. At the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, God the Holy Spirit took you and identified you, Romans 6.3, with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. At that instant that that happened, and you're identified with Jesus Christ, you are placed 
in Him. That is called the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, that identification with the Holy Spirit that initiates you in your Christian life. Of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became, the who refers to Christ Jesus, who became for us believers. He became for us wisdom from God. Now, in the structure of the argument in 1 Corinthians 1.30, he's been... Uh, Paul's been castigating the Corinthians because they've been putting all this emphasis on human viewpoint wisdom because of their influence from Greek culture. They've intellectualized everything, and they they brought in all of their Aristotelian and Stoic and and uh, Platonic wisdom, and they're making an issue out of that. And so Paul is contrasting the divine viewpoint wisdom of God as revealed in the Scripture versus all categories of, of human wisdom. And he says that real wisdom starts at the cross, and it is Jesus Christ who becomes for us wisdom from God. And then he expands on that, and he says, and righteousness. So we can look at each one of these in this way. He became for us wisdom from God. He became for us righteousness. He became for us sanctification. He became for us redemption. And so in this passage, we learn that He became for us righteousness. Now, the way this is structured in the language, we have this phrase, wisdom from God. And that is the word Sophia plus the Greek apa, the Greek preposition apa, and the genitive of God, which goes with apa. Now, the point I'm making is you do a word substitution here because these four nouns, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, are interchangeable. So that each one of them can go in, each one of them is from God. And the Greek preposition apa here indicates the place of origin, ultimate origin of these four things. The ultimate origin for the wisdom is God. The origin of the righteousness is God. The origin of the sanctification is God. The origin of the redemption is God. He is the ultimate author. So righteousness comes from God. Here it's the Greek preposition, apa, plus the genitive indicates the, the uh, place of origin. Now, the reason I make an issue out of that is because when we come to this next verse we're going to see a similar concept, but a slightly different Greek preposition. Now, sometimes these Greek prepositions are interchangeable, but often they are used, when they're used in the same kind of context, to indicate a slightly different uh, perspective. So, in apa, it indicates the place of the origin, and with the preposition ek, which we find in uh, 2 Corinthians um, Excuse me, I'm getting ahead of myself, which we'll find when we come up to Philippians 3.9. That is that he comes from the source of God. So he's the place of origin. He's also uh, the source. So it covers all the bases in terms of where that righteousness derives. But let's look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21 expresses how this righteousness gets to us. For he, that is God the Father, made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus Christ, as impeccable. He knew no sin. He did not ever sin in his humanity. The God the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Now, he doesn't make him sinful. Jesus never became sinful. He never sinned. But what God the Father does is he imputes or he credits to Jesus' account our sin. Now, I want you to think about this a minute because somebody asked a question a while back that was a good question. Say, God doesn't share his glory with anybody. God doesn't share other attributes with anybody. How can God share his righteousness with us? And the key here is understanding that imputation isn't a sharing. Because what we have here, we don't share our sin with Jesus because he would then become, he would, he would become a sinner. It is legally Credited to his account. It is a legal or accounting, an accounting transaction 
that occurs so that our sin is credited to him so that he can pay the penalty for it as our substitute. And that's brought out by that key word that's there, for us. He is a substitute for us for the purpose that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And again, we run into the same verb here for become that I talked about earlier, genomai, which indicates becoming something that we were not. We were unrighteous, and now we become something that we were not. The righteousness, dikaiosune, the righteousness of God, God is in the genitive. Now that could mean uh, a God type of righteousness. That would be using the genitive in, in an adjectival sense. It can also be a genitive of uh, possession, the righteousness that God possesses. And it can mean a genitive of source, that God is the source of the righteousness. Now, when you look at this phraseology, even it's, it's, it's a little bit ambiguous because it doesn't have the more specific preposition there. Uh, you say, can say the righteousness of God using just a simple genitive, or to make it more clear, you would substitute, if it's source or origin, you would substitute either apa or ek. Now we have apa in 1 Corinthians 1.30, and then we have ek over here in Philippians 3.9, where Paul says that I might be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. See, it's never really my righteousness. It is always Christ's righteousness. It is imputed to us legally. So Paul is saying that I might be found in him not having my own righteousness, which would be derived from the law, nothing more than human morality, which isn't good enough, but that which, that is that righteousness, which is through faith, not because of faith, it never comes because of faith. We have the Greek preposition dia here. This is so important. I learned this. I think I learned this in, uh, I don't know, theology proper, my first year of, of uh, seminary. And it was just such a mind-blowing concept that if, if God had wanted to say because of faith, which would make faith the cause of our salvation, which would make faith efficacious or, or um, meritorious, then he would the, the the scriptures would have used the preposition deal with an accusative case for pistis. It would be dia piston, but it's not accusative. It's uh, it's genitive, and dia plus a genitive indicates means, not cause. And it's just a very simple change in one or two letters, and it would change the whole concept. So it's not saying we're say that, that this is a righteousness that is because of faith. It is a righteousness that is through faith. The merit isn't in the faith. The faith that saves isn't a different kind of faith. The only thing that makes it different is the object of faith, which is Jesus Christ on the cross. And when you you're, the object of your faith is the work of Christ on the cross, that's what makes it salvific. It's not the kind of faith. Faith in and of itself is merely something that is the channel through which you appropriate something else. It's the object of faith that's important. So Paul says that which that righteousness which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is what? From God by faith. The word righteousness here is the word dikaiosune, a word that we've talked about many times. It is that quality of absolute perfection in God. It is the standard of his character. And so uh, our, our own righteousness, that is that which relates to this standard, is not uh, adequate. But it is only that righteousness which is from God that comes by faith. And uh, there we have the Greek phrase dia plus the uh, genitive. It is by faith. And here it is uh, epi plus the dative, which is on the basis of faith. See, it never says because of faith. It's either through faith or it's on the basis of faith. It's never because of faith. But the, the preposition here for from, which I don't have on the overhead, is ek. It's the other preposition for source. Dia, I mean, excuse me, apa and ek, 
by the time of Koine Greek were blending over. They, they overlapped. But when both words are used in all of these contexts for righteousness, we understand that it is God's righteousness itself, that the righteousness that is from God, that has its source in God, that is that which is uh, imputed or credited to us. It's never our righteousness. It never becomes our righteousness. It's always His righteousness. But it's that righteousness that saves us. This is the same thing that's stated in Titus 3.5. It's not by works of righteousness, that's good deeds, that we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Notice the salvation, once again, has a means. It's through regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. These are synonymous uh, concepts here. It's the Holy Spirit that produces the regeneration and the rebirth at the time of faith in Christ. Then Galatians 2.16, another passage we've discussed recently, because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith... In Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. This is the foundational message of justification. It's justification related to salvation, but what does that mean for your spiritual life? What it means for your spiritual life is that after you're saved, what you possess is perfect righteousness. God never is looking at your experiential righteousness as the cause of his blessing. Let's put this familiar chart up here for you. Here we have uh, the righteousness and justice of God in the upper left, left corner. The righteousness is a standard. The justice is the application of that standard to his creatures. But in the box we have every one of us. We are, before we're saved, minus R. We don't meet that standard. Here we have the cross of Christ. Christ is perfectly righteous. Uh, when, we, when he is uh, crucified on the cross, the Father pours out on him, imputes to him our unrighteousness, and Christ's perfect righteousness comes to, is imputed to us at salvation. So that we are declared righteous. That's everything that I've said up to this point. God the Father in His righteousness looks at the righteousness we have from Christ and declares us to be righteous. Now, He blesses us with eternal salvation. Why? Not because of anything we've done, but because we possess Christ's righteousness. After salvation, the... uh, as God the Father gives and distributes to us the blessings He's already decided upon, it's not because of our righteousness. It never is. That would be legalism. That we would be, we're good enough now to where we're going to get what, what God is giving us. God distributes it according to our maturity, not because of what we do. He's not going to give us uh, blessings that we can't handle. Because we're not spiritually mature enough yet to handle, just like you're not going to give certain things to your three and four year old children, because you know that they can't handle it. They would kill themselves if, if they if they had those things. So as you grow and mature, you understand in grace and as a result of justification that what you have at salvation, that imputation of righteousness, is the basis for every blessing you get for the rest of your life. It's not because you pray regularly. It's not because you go to church regularly. It's not because you're memorizing uh, 50 verses every year. That's great, and we should do those things because that's part of developing and maturing our priesthood. But that is not the cause of God's blessing. We are never, ever going to produce the kind of righteousness that we have from Jesus Christ. That's the basis of our righteousness. And see, if we skip ahead to Hebrews 6.1, we realize that this is a fundamental issue for them. For these Jews who are, who are tempted to go back under the law, Galatians uh, 2.16, that it's not by works of the law that we're justified. But here, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary or basic ABCs of Christ, let's push on to 
maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. See, that's what most Christians are trying to produce works so that they can merit blessing from God. And we have to change our thinking. And that's, that's what uh, the writer's talking about here. This repentance from dead works is quit trying to do good deeds in order to impress God to get more blessing. And that's what most people are trying to do. They don't understand that they already have all that they need in Jesus Christ. They just have to grow up a little bit so that those blessings uh, can be distributed. Now we come to our last verse, verse 14. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. The word there for full age is teleos, maturity. Those who are of full age, those who are mature, complete, they have grown up. See, that's where the real life begins is in maturity. That's where you really start uh, enjoying all your privileges of your priesthood and your ambassadorship and all the assets that God gave you is once you get to maturity because you understand what they are and how to use them. So he says, solid food belongs to those who are mature, that is, those who by not reason of use, but the word hexis, meaning skill, proficiency, that is the repetition and successful practice of spiritual skills. It's just the opposite of those who uh, haven't been uh, practicing, that are unskilled and haven't been applying doctrine in their life. So the mature are those who... Uh, repeatedly and successfully practice their spiritual skills and have their senses exercised or disciplined. It's the Greek verb gymnazo, to train naked, that is, to remove all uh, distractions, everything that would hinder you in spiritual uh, in your spiritual growth. It's the same word used in 1 Timothy 4, 7, where we're told to reject profane and old wives' fables like evolution and uh, uh, all the kinds of uh, motivational speaking that you get from most pulpits. Uh, Reject profane and old wise fables and exercise yourself. That is, discipline yourself, gymnazo. Exercise yourself toward godliness, that is, towards spiritual maturity. Hebrews 12.11 states the same thing in a slightly different way. Now, no chastening, that is divine discipline, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields, that is, that discipline, that process of gumnadzo, afterward, it yields the the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been what? Trained by it. That's that word gumnadzo, been disciplined by it. Final phrase. As you go through this process... You're trained to discern the difference between that which is good, kalos, constitutionally good, and that which is evil, kakos, kalos and kakos, that which is worthless, bad, and morally evil. So we uh, learn to discern the difference between good doctrine and false doctrine. You learn to make good decisions from a position of strength. That position of strength is because you have a, a reservoir of doctrine in your soul that produces wisdom. And it is on the basis of that wisdom that you make good decisions. And if you regress, what happens? is that that wisdom gets lost, you, you, you lose uh, the, the advanced doctrine, you're no longer making good decisions, and now there's accumulation and accumulation of bad decisions, and life begins to fall apart again. And as a result of this, they're in that state. They have become dull of hearing verse 11. They've regressed, but there's still hope. And that's the hope that he challenges them with in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 6, he says, This we will do if God permits. There's a holdout there because God may not permit. And that's the serious warning of the next few verses is that you as a believer can get so regressed in your spiritual life that no, nothing is going to pull you back apart from an act of God. Uh, God can still do it, but nothing else will. And you can get yourself in such a position of spiritual regression 
that there's no recovery, and then you're just going to die the sin unto death. That's the warning of chapter 6, and we'll get there next time. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for our time together this evening. May we be encouraged, strengthened by this, that we, this is serious, this spiritual life that we have, and we must nourish, nourish it and strengthen it through the study of your word that we can grow and advance, that you're training us for a purpose, and that is to rule and reign with you as kings and priests, and we'll all have responsibilities, and uh, they'll be perfectly uh, matched for our who we are and what we've done in this life, and and that we'll be able to serve you in, in tremendous ways when the kingdom comes. We pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen.